Next will allow us to provide the necessary resources to relocate, expand, and improve our church home. It's been clear for months now that we've maxed out our space in our current facility. A new church home means greater opportunities to pursue those far from God in our community with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. Next is an investment in our future and in our friends. By relocating our church home and upgrading our facilities, we can increase our local ministry and invest in the lives of more people who need the hope and new life that only Jesus can offer them. It's time now for the people of Cross Point to step up. God has given us the incredible opportunity and privilege to participate in His kingdom work here in Northwest Atlanta, to see lives changed in ways that can only be explained by Him. But with that incredible privilege comes great responsibility. We are being asked now to respond to God's faithfulness and generosity by providing an unprecedented amount of resources so that our church can step into what God has for us next. Hi, my name's Jay Perrazzo. This is my wife. Kate Perrazzo. And uh, we've been attending Cross Point for almost four years, uh, along with our son, Wyatt. We uh, really have gotten plugged into the church when we first started dating. We, uh, we each had our individual church homes, mm-hmm. uh, but it was real important once we uh, were married that we... And we didn't really find one for a while. We did not. Uh, that we found a place that we could call our own, uh, not yours and mine. Uh, so that, that's how we came across Cross Point and uh, fell in love with it immediately. It mm-hmm. uh, felt like home from day one. Trusted it with our son. Yeah, the, the daycare, the children's church upstairs. Kids ministry. Kids ministry before I get in trouble. <laughs> Been very good. Uh, just, just a very good place overall. Enjoyed, enjoyed the staff, enjoyed the, the, the families at the church. You know, when, when the next initiative came across, and we just started discussing it. it. It was very obvious if you go to the church any amount of time, uh, you see people pulling chairs out in the back. You see people standing up in the back. Uh, I've seen people sitting on the floor. Um, it, it was very obvious that we needed a, uh, a facility that would house uh, the growing population. Um, we've, we've got the sign on the back of the church of people that we want to reach for Christ. And uh, just a small percentage of those pretty much bust the seams of the walls at our church. So we, we needed some place. We can't really reach them if we, there's no room in the building. We have no the, place to take the uh, And it was very obvious on, on, on Sunday mornings you would see, like you, you would show up just a, a minute or two behind schedule, and we wouldn't be able to find a seat because we had to run upstairs, drop our child off. Um, it, it was a need. It was a very obvious need. Um, and it's one I was very happy our church was willing to address. We, we, we've seen it manifest. We, we know there's a building now. Uh, we know the location. You can actually go put your hands on it. So in the beginning, we were, we were giving in faith, uh, trusting in the leadership of the church, which, which we fully trust the elders and the pastor. Where, where are we going? What are we going to do uh, with the money that the next, the next initiative is generating? And now a year later, we're actually able to sit in that building, which we are right now as we're recording this, see the building, put your hands on it. It's it's a physical place, and it just even makes it that much more exciting. And on top of that, now we're, we're seeing more people coming to our church now, and now we have a facility that can can handle that influx of crowd. Uh, so it's just really it's kind of enjoyable to see and knowing that it, we had a small part in it. Um, and I, I really, I, I, I'm happy to have done yeah. done that and be a part of it. And I know we still got a long way to go before the church is ready, and 
Um, I highly encourage anyone who's attending Crosspoint, if, if this is your church home, give. It, it's, it, it's going to be awesome. You can see where we're going and what we're doing. So I highly encourage it. Well, hey, Susie told you earlier that today is a unique day and a special day in the life of our church. Uh, We're taking a week off of our Acts series, and today we're just going to spend some time talking about our future. And I know several of you in the room, you came ready to invest financially in that future, and you probably have your next envelopes in your hands, and you're ready to give those, and so just hang on to them. At the end of my message, we're going to give you a chance to come and to bring those forward and to place them in the boxes down front, all right? Well, I want to take a moment and just thank the Perazos for sharing their story with us because it reintroduces us to a conversation that we started about a year ago. Uh, last fall, I began sharing plans in regards to an upcoming move. We wanted to buy a property and move our church family into a new facility, and that was due to a couple of reasons. One, we're just out of space here on Sundays, and you can look around in this gathering, and if you come back to the next one, like it's very clear uh, what I mean. But in addition to our space issues on Sundays, we've been unable to use this building to serve our community in ways that we desire. A great example is Hope for Christmas. For three years now, we've had to do Hope for Christmas somewhere else because we don't have the space in this building to host that event. Another example is our partnership with Bartow Family Promise. We've been asked by that ministry partner to house homeless families in our facility throughout the year, and we've had to turn down every single one of those requests because this building just doesn't allow for it. You see, it was in light of those types of issues that I asked our church last fall to give to what we call the next initiative, right? Let's raise together $1.3 million through one-time gifts and three-year giving commitments to move our family into a place that, that a year ago we didn't even know existed. And I just want to say thank you for giving in faith because uh, together we blew right past our goal. And what's incredible is your faithfulness and your generosity allowed us to say yes to God's provision. You see, many of you know that uh, not long ago we signed a sales contract on a property. It's the Excel Christian Academy property over on Old Mill Road. We're getting 12 acres of land, 83,000 square feet of building space. And I have no idea what we're going to do with all of it just yet, but we'll figure that out. But it was because of your generosity that we were able to say yes to that. Now, you saw in the video a moment ago renovations, like uh, our renderings, I should say, of what the renovations will look like after they're completed on the property. If you want a closer look at those, we have them out in the lobby for you. And so we'll leave them there over the next several weeks, and you can go check them out and ask questions. But, but the space is going to be phenomenal once it's done. And I also want to ask you to pray over the renovation process Two things specifically, all right? Uh, The plan and hope is to start next month. So pray specifically that the few things that have to get done, get done in the next few weeks so we can get started. And then also pray specifically against any major hiccups. If you've ever been a part of any kind of renovation project, whether it was personally or in a corporate setting, uh, you know that when you start tearing stuff out and putting stuff back together, you never really know what you're going to find. Uh, We're praying by the grace of God that we don't find much, okay? And so if we can stay on track, we'll get to move into that new space around May of next year, all right? And finally, if you have questions about the project or the move, just reach out and feel free to ask those questions, and uh, I or one of our elders would love to have a conversation with you, all right? 
Well, great. Well, hey, today we're going to dive back into the biblical conversation that we were having a year ago. And so if you have a Bible or a device with an app, grab those things and let's head to Nehemiah chapter 5 together. Nehemiah chapter 5. If you're new to church or new to Bible reading, uh, Nehemiah, it's in the Old Testament. And so if you just kind of head to the middle of your Bible, find the book of Psalms and flip left a few pages, you'll run into the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 5. Well, this series that we were in last year uh, concerning the next initiative, it was a series on leadership. And I'm sure upon hearing that, some of you are already assuming that this has nothing to do with you because you don't consider yourself to be a leader. But I want to work in the next minute or two to convince you otherwise, all right? I, I really believe this. I really believe that every single person in this room has the potential to be a leader in some area of life. Because when it's all said and done, leadership is this. It's you using the influence you've been given to impact your world. So if you're a parent in the room, you can use the influence you've been given over your kids to impact the worlds, to guide them, to shape them, to mold them, to help them move in the right direction. Uh, Students in the room, you can use the influence you've been given to impact your school you go to each day. As a citizen of this nation, uh, you can impact the country you live in. As an employee, your workplace. As a neighbor, your neighborhood. As an individual, your circle of friends. Again, influence is simply you using, uh, I'm sorry, leadership is you using the influence you've been given to impact your world. Now, here's the great news for some of us who are wrestling with that right now. And you're wondering, well, do I really have what it takes to do all that? Here's the great news. When you look into the scriptures you'll find that that God rarely does he use the star athlete, the highly affluent, those voted most likely to succeed to impact their worlds. More often than not, you find God using the underwhelming, ordinary person that no one would ever expect him to use. And our boy Nehemiah is a great example of what I'm talking about. You see, Nehemiah was a slave. The nation of Babylon had conquered the nation. He lived in uh, the nation of Judah. And and in doing so, they tore down the majestic temple that Solomon had built. They demolished the walls that surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And they forced many of the people living in the city during that time into captivity in Babylon. Well, when we pick up in Nehemiah's story, it's 150 years into that captivity. The Persians have defeated the Babylonians and emerged as the new world leaders And for some reason, they were kind enough to allow some of the Jewish people in captivity to go back home to Jerusalem. Well, unfortunately, our boy Nehemiah wasn't one of those people. He got stuck living as a slave to the king. And I assume that he was probably, like many of us in the room today, like never considered himself to be a leader. Never assumed that God would call on him to impact his world. But that's exactly what happened. When you go back to the beginning of the book in chapter 1, you find one of Nehemiah's brothers traveling to the city of Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he sees that the walls are in ruin, the people are vulnerable, they're suffering, they're in trouble. And so he goes to Nehemiah and he reports all that he witnessed. And the Bible says that Nehemiah, he sat down and he wept and he prayed. And he just asked God, like, God, what in the world should we do? What can we do? And that's when God gave this slave a vision to rebuild the walls. Now, last fall, I told you that if we're going to see the vision that God has for our lives clearly, that we need to look through some different lenses. And we see these lenses reflected in Nehemiah's story. There's four to be exact. Number one, we have to look through the lens of what is. So it starts with an assessment of reality. 
I need to get really honest about the condition of my spiritual life, the condition of my marriage, my family, my workplace, my school, my nation, right? We can't avoid the truth. We have to be honest about it and embrace it. The truth is our friend. Uh, Number two, we have to look through the lens of what should be. The question to ask here is, what is God's ideal? And then we let the gap that exists between what is and what should be serve as the motivation that, that forces us to actually stand up and do something. Number three, we look through the lens of responsibility. Isn't it often true that when we as people see something wrong in the world, the first thought that comes to mind is, wow, somebody ought to do something about that. But look, when God gives you a vision for your life, you start to realize that's somebody's me. Somebody ought to do something about that, and it might as well be me. I'm responsible. And then finally, we look through the lens of God's greatness. This is so key. Look, if you look through the other three lenses and you miss this one, it all falls apart. This is so important. You look through the lens of God's greatness. If you fail to fixate on his greatness, you as a result will fixate on all of your inabilities and on all of your weaknesses, and your vision for your life will remain small. And as a result, you'll miss out on all God wants to use you for. Now, in addition to these lenses, we also learned last fall about the type of person God uses. And here's what we said. God, number one, uses the one willing to sit down and weep. Right? The idea is simple. Our hearts, if we want to be used by God, our hearts have to break over the things that break his heart. That's a big question we need to wrestle with today. Does your heart break over the things that break the heart of God? Number two, God uses the one willing to kneel down and pray. So when we see the issues and the injustices that exist in our world and we're brokenhearted over those things, we can't just sit around and be brokenhearted. We have to come to an understanding that those problems are too big for us to handle on our own. Therefore, we go to God as the answer and the solution. And then number three, God uses the one willing to stand up and act. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Look. You can have a persistent prayer life and a broken heart all you want. But if you fail to actually do something about what God has shown you, you miss out on God's vision and his plan for your life. And so what does it mean? And what does it look like to stand up and act as leaders in order to impact our world? Well, that's the question we're going to talk about and answer today from Nehemiah 5. All right, so if your Bibles are in your hand, get them ready. We're going to start reading in just a moment. But as you're getting ready for that, let me just set the scene for us, okay? Here's what's happening. As the Jewish people are continuing to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, uh, they start to experience some massive internal issues, some struggles, if you will. A famine has taken place. You see, this was an agricultural society, and because the people were working on the walls, it meant that they weren't working in the fields. And because they weren't working in the fields, that meant a bad harvest, Well, the bad harvest meant families didn't have enough food to eat. And so in the first five verses of Nehemiah chapter 5, what you see is uh, certain families mortgaging off their fields in order to make money to buy food. Other families are borrowing money in order to pay their taxes to the Persians. And what's crazy is their Jewish brothers from whom they were borrowing were charging them outrageous amounts of interest. And then finally, we see families, parents think about this, we see families selling their children into slavery in order to pay off their debts. And here's where we pick up in verse 6. I want you to see how Nehemiah responds. Read this with me. This is him speaking. I was very angry when I heard their outcry, those are these suffering people, and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. 
I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. And so here's what's happening. Nehemiah hears about the injustices being committed against these people and he gets angry. And rightfully so. I mean, it should always make us angry when powerless people are taking advantage of, are taking advantage of. What I love about Nehemiah is that he refuses to act in his anger, right? Instead, he says, I took counsel with myself. I love that phrase. It just sounds so distinguished. You know, I took counsel with myself. All it means is that he got alone and he used his brain and and he spent time thinking and praying and seeking the Lord And he did that in order to land on whatever might be the best course of action, the most helpful way to respond. Look, we can learn from that. Again, it should always make us angry when powerless people are taken advantage of. But what we can't do is act in our anger and as a result respond poorly. Instead, we have to be like Nehemiah. We have to get alone with the Lord. We have to leave our brains on and we have to think through and pray through with God's help the best course of action. Well, Nehemiah decided the best course of action is to pull together the leaders of, uh, of these people, the ones who are responsible for letting them suffer like this and call them out for what they're doing. And so that's what he did. He gathered together the nobles and the officials and he said to them, hey, you're exacting interest from your own brothers, which, by the way, was forbidden by Jewish law. In Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, God said to his people, the nation of Israel, if a foreigner borrows from you, you can charge them interest. But if one of your own brothers borrows from you, don't charge him anything. Let them borrow freely that I, the Lord, may bless you. Now, in addition, Nehemiah says to these guys, these same brothers that you're exacting interest from, they were once forced into captivity, into slavery. We've bought them back and brought them back to this great city, Jerusalem, and now you're selling your own brothers back into slavery for your own benefit. You ever been caught doing something you knew you shouldn't be doing? Makes for an awkward moment, doesn't it? It's like deer in headlight moments. Uh, I don't know what to say. This was one of those moments. These guys had been caught, and it was awkward, and they had nothing to say in response. And so Nehemiah takes advantage of their silence, and he continues. Look at verse 9. So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought not you to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Now, look, this is so key, and I, and I need to point this out for us, all right, because what we just read, there's a lot going on, but there's one big idea we can't miss. Nehemiah says to these nobles and officials, guys, God's reputation is at stake here. I know you think that, that this is all business. It's just a big business transaction, but you need to know God's reputation is at stake. He has freed us. He freed our ancestors from captivity in Egypt long ago. He's he's freed us from Babylonian captivity. And now we're forcing our own people back into captivity. And our enemies are laughing at us. 
They're witnessing our lack of love and concern for one another. And they are taunting both us and our God. Listen, this should remind us, my friends, that we can't ever believe the lie that as long as we love people out there really well, they'll get a picture of who God is, while at the same time believing we can treat each other however we want to treat each other in here, and it have no impact on how people see God. Are you with me? Let me make my point, all right? Let me go Bible on you for a minute. First John 4, verses 10 through 12. This is uh, John, the disciple of Jesus, writing. He says this, and pay attention to this first phrase, because I'm going to quiz you on it in a minute, all right? So don't miss it. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. All right, here's the quiz. Ready? According to John, who loved who first? Did we love God first or did he love us first? Yeah, he loved us first, right? When we were his enemies, when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, when we were at our worst, God loved us. And he put his love for, uh, for us on display through Jesus. Jesus came into the world to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. And so here's what John says. He goes, hey, if that's how God loved us, shouldn't we as the people of God love each other? And then here's the kicker. He says this. And if we, if we love each other like we've been loved, even though no one has seen God, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So in other words, don't miss it. In other words, when we love one another as we've been loved, that's when the world out there gets a clear picture of who God is. This is why I'm so passionate about our church getting this right. That's why I'm so passionate about our church loving one another. You see, I know that we can never accomplish our mission out there until our relationships are first what they need to be in here. Because if our relationships aren't what they need to be in here, all we do is bring reproach upon the name of our God. Listen, on that note, um, I need to address something really quickly, if I can, that came to my attention just this past week. And if you're a guest in the house with us today, um, I would say feel free to check out, you know, text somebody take a bathroom break, whatever you want to do. Uh, at times, churches like ours need to have family talks, family moments. Um, this is one of those moments, okay? Um, so let me just spill it. Uh, a couple months ago, we rolled out a new seating plan, a new seating strategy in this gathering and at 1130, because as you can see, these gatherings just continue to be packed like wall-to-wall with people. And so we rolled out a new seating strategy to ensure, one, that everybody has a place to sit, and two, uh, that families weren't forced to sit in different places in the room. And it's been working really well, by the way. So I, I want to commend our host team members. You guys are awesome. Thank you for working hard to make sure people have a place to sit. But what I learned this past week is this. Um, there are a few people, not many people, just a handful of people. But there are a few people who are showing up here on Sundays, and they're being very, very rude to our host team members. Like very rude. Like, not just a little rude, but, like, unbelievably rude. And if that's you, um, I want to say to you, look, I love you, and I want you to be here, but you're in the wrong church. Like, that's not who we are at Cross Point City Church. We're not trying to create a social club, right? Nobody here deserves more honor than anybody else. We don't have assigned seats. We never have. We never will. Um, it's great. We'll always ask you to give up your seats for the sake of other people. Always. 
And so, again, if that's you, I want you to know I love you, um, but it has to stop, like now, like today. And I want to ask you to repent of your sin of pride and selfishness because it's very clear that, that your attitudes and actions, like, man, they're contradicting everything that Jesus teaches and stands for. And they contradict everything that this church believes and stands for. And so, again, hear me. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. But if you don't want to get on board with who we are and where we're going and what we're trying to accomplish, this is the wrong church for you. All right? Are you with me? Now that we got that awkward moment out of the way, let me bring it back. All right? It's like somebody just got in trouble at the dinner table, right? <sighs> let me bring it back. All right? Guests, thanks for bearing with me. I know that's weird, but I needed to say it. Um, Nehemiah calls them out, calls them out for these injustices they're committing against the people, and he basically says what I just said. Guys, this has to stop today. You have to stop bringing reproach upon the name of God today. Walk in fear of him, walk in reverence of him, stop charging your brother's interests and give them back their stuff today, today. Now, I love what happens next. Look at verse 12. And then they said, back to Nehemiah, we will restore these things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And this is the part that I love. This is so interesting. Nehemiah says, and I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. And so these people, these nobles and these leaders look at Nehemiah and they say, hey, everything you just asked us to do, we're going to do it. And Nehemiah says back to them, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I'm calling the priests in. Like, you know it's bad when the brother has to call the priests in, right? Back in this time, the priests were the ones who administered oaths. And so Nehemiah, it's almost like he says to them, look, I don't think you're so sorry for what you've been doing. I kind of think you're more sorry that you got caught. And so I'm going to call the priests in, and you're going to take an oath in front of them. It's insane. Now look at verse 13. He says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Now back during this time, when a person shook out their garment, it was a symbol of rejection. And so you can just picture Nehemiah shaking out his garment and saying, hey, if any of you break this oath that you just took in the presence of the priest, I'm going to ask God to shake you out, to reject you. I'm going to ask him to take from you your house, your possessions, your ability to work, everything you've taken from the people, I'm going to ask God to take from you. And the people said in agreement, amen, so let it be. And praise God, they actually did as they had promised. Now, this raises a huge question in my mind. And here's the question. How in the world did a slave gain that kind of influence over the leaders of his day? How did a slave impact his world in the way we just witnessed? Well, if you're taking notes, you can write down these two words, and we'll spend some time unpacking what I mean. Moral authority. That's the end. How did, he, how did he impact his world? Moral authority. Moral authority. Let's finish reading the passage, and it'll all make sense, all right? Verse 14. Nehemiah goes on. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah... From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the, on, on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. 
But I didn't do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared, this is key, at my expense. If you're writing your Bible, underline that phrase. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days, all kind of wine in abundance. And yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. And I love this prayer at the end. Remember, for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. So here's what we just read. For 12 years, Nehemiah served as the governor of Judah. As governor, he had every right to tax the people under his leadership. They would have expected him to do so. Part of that tax meant him getting a food allowance. So he would have taken food from the people to support his household, his servants, and anyone who traveled into the city to visit him as the governor. Well, here's what I love. Nehemiah said, I didn't do it. I didn't take that food allowance. I didn't do what so many governors before me had done, laying heavy burdens on the backs of these suffering people. Instead, I took care of my household. At my expense, I supported my servants. I supported all these people who came to visit me. Right? In other words, I paid the price so that these suffering people wouldn't have to. Does it make sense now when I say moral authority? His influence came from moral authority? You see, there's a big difference between positional authority and moral authority. Positional authority is authority gained because your name is at the top of some org chart, you know? People do what you say, not because they want to, but because they have to. Just so you know, that's not leadership. That's just being a boss. Moral authority is different. Moral authority is authority gained because you're a person of character who actually practices what you preach. That was Nehemiah. Here was a guy who refused to abuse his power for personal gain. So when he stood in front of these nobles and officials and he says, it's time to do what's right. Stop abusing your power for personal gain. They listened because they were listening to a man who had done exactly what he was asking them to do. Look, with that said, I want to give you one big leadership lesson from Nehemiah's story, and then we'll be done. This is in regards to standing up and acting in order to impact our world. Here's the lesson. You need to know today that true leadership is sacrifice. True leadership is sacrifice. You want to be a great leader in some area of your life? Like men, you want to be a great husband? Moms and dads, you you want to be great parents? Uh, Those of you who are employees, you want to be a great leader at work? You want to impact your workplace? Students, you want to impact your school? Look, here's where it starts. With sacrifice. You see, no one wants to follow a selfish leader, but anyone will follow a selfless leader. And one of the key characteristics of a selfless leader is sacrifice. Again, it's what we see in Nehemiah, right? He was a guy who forfeited everything that was rightfully his for the sake of other people. That's leadership. I'll do whatever it takes and give up whatever it requires for the benefit of others. It's the same kind of leadership we see in Jesus, This is why I love Jesus so much. Like if you're new to church and the whole Jesus conversation, let me tell you why I love Jesus. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, who is God, came to this earth and he didn't take a place of positional authority. He didn't show up and demand, follow me, obey me, love me, do what I say, I'm God. Even though he could have. 
Instead, what did Jesus do? Well, he humbled himself. And he came as a man. And for 33 years, he lived among us. And he lived the life none of us have been able to live, a life of sinless perfection. And at the end of that life, he went to a cross. And he sacrificed himself in our place for our sins so that we could be loved and accepted by God. And it was his sacrifice that legitimized everything he taught and preached while he was here. You see, that's why it's so easy for me to follow Jesus. I know that the God I love, the God I worship, the God I serve, that he'll never ask me to do anything he hasn't already done, and he'll never ask me to sacrifice anything he hasn't first sacrificed. Now, I want you to look up here for a moment. You and I have the same opportunity before us today. I don't know if you realize this, but there are many, many, many injustices that exist in this community in which God has placed us. We saw a lot of those injustices on the screens a short time ago when we prayed over the prayer request. But right now in this community, and I see it all the time, marriages are falling apart, families are crumbling to the ground, people are stuck in addiction. I just talked to a mom after our last gathering and said, pray for my 30-year-old son. He goes back to jail tomorrow because he relapsed again. He's fallen back into addiction. Stories all over the place like that young man's. Pray for him. You got kids growing up in broken homes without godly parental guidance. We got people in this community right now stuck in, in physical poverty like you wouldn't believe. They can't pay their bills. They can't feed their families. They don't know where money's coming from. There are people here in Cartersville and Bartow County living on the streets with no food to eat and no place to lay their heads at night. Most significantly, there are thousands upon thousands of people outside our walls right now who are stuck in spiritual poverty. There's a reason that number lives on our back wall. If you've ever wondered what that is, it's the reminder for us that within a 15-mile radius of this building we're in this morning, that there are over 260,000 people who don't belong to a church family like ours, and chances are many of them have no idea that there's a God out there who loves them. So much so that he sacrificed his one and only son so that they could know new and eternal life. They have no idea that that God is inviting them into his family as sons and daughters and that he has a great purpose and plan for their lives. We have an opportunity as a church, look, to right those injustices. And how do we do it? Through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. Every single person in this room today has an opportunity to impact their world. Every person in the room has an opportunity to influence those around you. All of us can be the leaders God's calling us to be. But only if we're willing to come before God with open hearts and open hands and say to him, God, I am ready and willing to do whatever it takes and to give up whatever it requires for the benefit of other people. Look, I've been saying for the past year, that this whole next initiative, in reality, that's what it's all about. It's not about a building. Please hear my heart on this. I could care less about the building. Yes, we're on a building, and yes, we're renovating a building. But it's about so much more than a building. It's about the mission. I truly believe with all my heart that that building is nothing more than a tool or a resource that God has blessed us with so that we can accomplish our mission in even greater ways. And this initiative is about making certain sacrifices for the sake of that mission. Sacrifices that allow our church to serve and minister to broken, hurting people in this community who are desperate for the hope and help that only Jesus offers. 
Sacrifices that allow us to make more room for those stuck in spiritual poverty so they can join us and learn about the Jesus who gave his life for them. And my question for us today is, are we willing to make sacrifices for those purposes? Look, I know some of us have already answered that question with a big fat yes. You know, we've been giving to the initiative for the past year. And I want to say to you, if that's you, thank you for the sacrifices you've made in order to give. I know others of you, you showed up ready today to say yes. Right? You brought your, your gifts and you brought your two-year commitments. And you're ready today to say to God, I'm willing to give up whatever it takes to benefit people in this community who need what I've found in you. And, and I know that there are others of us in the room who are kind of still on the fence, right? We're going, oh, well, I think I might, but I don't really know. Ugh, sacrifice, ah, scary word, right? And what I want to say to you again is this. You have an opportunity to impact your world. You have an opportunity to influence the lives of those around you for the sake of Jesus Christ. Do not waste an opportunity to do something that God might be calling you to do. I'll leave us with this and and we'll be done, all right? Uh, This past week, I just happened to come across uh, an article, like a blog article on the topic of Christian leadership. Wasn't working or wasn't looking for it. It just happened to come across a news feed that I was checking out. And I read it, and I got to the end, and I was like, man, i got to use this. It's just so good. And so the author had this to say. He said, at the heart of leading is taking initiative we otherwise wouldn't take and making sacrifices we otherwise wouldn't make to guide our people somewhere good they otherwise would not have gone. We embrace short-term personal difficulties for long-term corporate gains. And then he continued and said this. Christian leadership in the home, in the church, and elsewhere, look at this, don't miss it. It's not for those clawing for honor and recognition, but for those most ready to fall to their knees and be inconvenienced by the needs of others. That's the opportunity before us today, church. He says Christian leaders, instead of pursuing their own immediate benefit, they are willing to sacrifice for others' benefit. Very, very simple in concept very, very difficult to practice. We can't be those type of leaders without God's help. So why don't we just stop right now and ask him for the help we need. Will you join me in that? God, we come before you today and first and foremost, we want to thank you for all that you're doing in and through this church. God, I'm just constantly amazed at how you're moving, how you're working, at how you're changing lives. God, I'm most amazed that you would use a broken guy like me, broken people like us, for your purposes. God, may it humble us. May it humble us to the point that we are willing to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice so that others can experience what we found in Christ. God, we need your help. We're just acknowledging that today. God, we need your Holy Spirit to work on us to instill humility in us. God, we need your help in being selfless. God, help us to decrease and to become less so that Jesus can increase and become more and more in us. God, I thank you for all the people that are already making sacrifices for the sake of your kingdom. I thank you for those who've come ready to do that today. And I, and I pray specifically for my friends in the room who are still wrestling with what that looks like and what it means. God, would you give them the faith they need to take what might be a scary step? God, help them to trust you. 
Let them know today that they can trust you. God, we love you so much and we're so grateful for your great love for us. God, we love knowing that we love you because you loved us first. God, you went first. May we follow suit when it comes to others. God, would you bless this time? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.